0: I'm the Gypsy and you're not and this is the Rubber Biscuit Road Show presented by Artist Alley Studio featuring the artisan handcrafted and branded creations of the Gypsy and Mad Hatter at www.artistalleystudio.com and now on with the show. Welcome to the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow. I am your host, The Gypsy. Well, this is the first episode of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow, but I have to tell you that this is not the first time that I've tried to do a podcast. Way back in the dark ages of 2007, I was on another platform. Now, back then they weren't known as podcasts. I don't think that term had come about yet. I think at that time they were called audio blogs or something like that. Really strange, anyway. I was on this platform and it was good for a while they gave you all the time you needed people could call into your show they had all sorts of effects you could use and you could record on whatever day you felt like recording and they saved all your files for you and all you had to do for this free service just let them carry advertising on your web page that was it but unfortunately all good things come to an end they got greedy pretty soon you can only record on certain days You only could record for 30 minutes, then you could only have one caller, then they started eliminating your files. Needless to say, I became frustrated, so I just gave it up. I didn't even do it anymore, and I stepped away from it. Well, now here we are in 2021, and I've decided to start the podcast again. Only this time, instead of it being called Radio Free Kitty, which was the original name of the show that I had back in 2007, it is now the Rubber Biscuit Road Show. So, I'm glad you're here, I'm glad you're listening, and on this season of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow, what we're going to do is I am going to present my novel, Never Say Never, An Epic Journey. It is the story of my mother, Shirley Elizabeth Hummel, who suffered from mental illness her entire life. It's also the story of her family, which coincidentally happens to be my family, too. One of the reasons why I want to present this novel is because all too often... People that have loved ones that suffer from mental illness really don't know how to deal with that loved one. I want you to learn and to understand that your loved one suffering from mental illness needs you, needs you more than you really know. If telling my mother's story helps you to love, cherish, and help those in your life, friends, family, acquaintances who suffer from mental illness, then telling her story has honored her. So without any further ado, I present Never Say Never, An Epic Journey, Volume 1, written by J. A. George, also known as The Gypsy. Dedicated with love to my wife, Rachel Ruth George, whose heroic right battle against her own mental illness has been an inspiration to many, but most importantly, to me. Introduction. As I sat down to tell my mother's story, I knew the journey would not be an easy one. Whether I am reliving certain events or recreating other events, it is an emotional roller coaster that takes a toll on me. With exhilarating highs that drop dangerously down into pits of despair. These were the two things that defined my mother's life, and these were the two things that contributed to her mental state. This first volume has taken years to put together as I must walk away and breathe before all the breath is pulled from me. I may walk away for days, weeks, and months. In one break it was a year before I picked up the story again because of the emotional toll that was taken on me in the telling of that part. I have striven to use the actual facts, names, places, and times that I remember or that was shared with me through retelling. I have made every effort I can within my power to do so to verify third-party information. I have not to my knowledge recounted false information nor details even when I have had to recreate events that I was not directly involved in. The hardest part of telling this tale is in the recreation of actual people. They are the cast of characters that populate this tale and as with any story, the storyteller must develop those characters and put the words into the mouth of those characters that will properly convey the story. The difference here is that I have to recreate actual words, emotions, and scenes that were real and not work of fiction. I sincerely hope that it will not be long before I can start working on Volume 2, because there is so much more to tell than what can be contained in one volume. But until I can continue the story, Volume 1 is as good a place to start and help you understand that I did not like my mother. James A. George Prologue, I Want to Be Alone I did not like my mother, it is true. I did not like her yet, I loved her. Like should never be confused with love and vice versa. They are two different things altogether. You can love the color purple, but dislike lilacs. You can dislike New York City, but love the Yankees. Like and love are as different as night and day, and as big a paradox as the love-dislike relationship I had with my mother. Sometimes I do not know if it was my mother I disliked or her mental illness. I dealt with her delusions and paranoia every day as I was growing up. With each disappointment, unrealized goal, or broken heart she suffered, she would sink further down into her madness. The further she sunk, the more I disliked her. Within my mother's time, her doctors diagnosed her as a depressed hypochondriac. Today she would be diagnosed as having bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and anxiety. Unfortunately, the system failed her at many turns. She did not get the help she needed from the medical professionals that should have been charged to treat her illness. Instead, her family was left to address and deal with her ever-declining state. The majority of the time, that responsibility fell on me. I would often find myself trying to reason with her, but to no avail. She would block me out and take comfort in the fantasy world she created. Her world was so real that she had the ability to draw others into it with her, but she never pulled me in. It seemed like I was constantly saying, Mom, that did not happen. You forgot I was there. She would just wave me off saying, you were too young to remember. I would then name times, places, dates, and people. My mother would look at me and say, I don't know how you remember all that. And then she would change the subject. I finally got so frustrated that I closed her out. I disliked her. My dislike for her was so strong, in fact, that I once stated quite vehemently I will not cry when she passes away that however was not to be she's been gone since 2010 and I still cry when I think about her too long even as my eyes are moist right now with the writing of this tale never say never so it was I found myself on a journey to honor the last request of a woman who I disliked whose illness I disliked yet whom I loved my mother Her dying wish was to be buried at Rochester Cemetery in Topeka, Kansas, between her mother and father. As a dutiful and loving son, I made it my mission to honor her request. Her ashes were interred on her birthday, July 26, 2013, between her parents, Oscar Lennox and Pearl Adeline Klang Hummel, three years after her passing. In order for me to tell Shirley's story properly from this moment on, I must jump ahead in time, then fall back to her past, as well as my past, all the while moving towards the goal of fulfilling my mother's last wishes. I must handle the story in this manner. In order for me to tell Shirley's story properly, I must share with you some of my own story for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, because without Shirley's history, I would have no history. The second reason is because the story of my family and the story of Topeka, Kansas are so interwoven that for my own sake of understanding, my ancestry I must tell, pass down, and share what I know and what I have been told. I must knit my history, my mother's history, and my family's history together the way Madame Defarge knitted out the fate of her enemies. The difference is that my yarn spins towards the fate of my family, not those I despise, but those whom I respect, love, and mourn. Chapter 1, Off to See the Wizard, Monday, July 22, 2013. I tripped down a long road to carry the heavy load of one loved, now gone, a hopeless pawn or wounded swan. The sun had not even broken the horizon as I maneuvered the big V-twin onto Interstate 20 heading west. Black Betty, my motorcycle, is a 2001 Harley Davidson Road King. She loves the highway, and as I opened her throttle, she came to life. She sang her thump, thump, thump song as the needle climbed to 85 miles per hour. Normally I would not run that fast, but I had to get as many miles under me as I could before the sun climbed high in the sky. Al Roker on the Weather Channel said that all along my planned route it would be a scorcher, and I wanted as little to do with the heat as I could. As I headed towards Abilene, Texas, my connection onto the U.S. 277 North, I wondered how angry were the Google Map Gods that I had the audacity not to follow their directions. They had suggested that I take a route from my home in Eula, Texas to Wichita Falls, Texas that I knew, for a fact, was nothing more than an asphalted cattle trail. I knew that the road was so narrow and bumpy that cattle had, in fact, stopped taking it and had demanded safe passage through that portion of Texas on rail cars, or else they would go on strike. I was confident in my chosen route to Wichita Falls. I had taken it before and I knew it was four lanes most of the way. For Texas roads, it wasn't half bad. Besides, I felt like the Google Map gods would forgive me since I agreed with the rest of their suggested route from Wichita Falls, Texas to Topeka, Kansas, my final destination on the first leg of this epic journey. Black Betty roared up 277, rejoicing in her freedom and thanking me by giving me a smooth ride despite the grooved road conditions. The sun came up bright and orange in the east as we passed by Haskell, Texas. I checked my mileage and fuel gauge as we passed through Monday, Texas, and determined that I could make it to Seymour, Texas, before I would need to stop for gas. As I headed north through Gore, Texas, I was pleased to see that Techstock was busy adding two more lanes to this particular stretch of two-lane road. As I stated earlier, most of 277 is four lanes. However, there are sections that are still two lanes. Tech's dot has taken their time about adding the other two lanes, but slowly and surely, they are getting the job done. As I approached the ghost town of Beaumartin, Texas, the big road machines were busy on the east side of the road, turning dirt into highways. Up ahead on my right, I could see three cotton trucks waiting to turn onto the highway. Cotton is a major crop in that area of Texas, and though Beaumarton is a ghost town, they still have a working gin. As I approached the intersection at 70 miles per hour, the first of the three trucks pulled out in front of me. As the big red truck lumbered onto the highway, I found myself left with a split second decision. Hit the shoulder, hit the truck, or pass quickly due to an approaching hill. Hitting the shoulder was not an option as there was no shoulder. The road crews had seen to that. Hitting the truck was definitely out of the question as I did not want to mar his pretty red paint with my pretty red blood. So that left option number three, pass quickly due to an approaching hill. Opening up the throttle, I accelerated and forced Black Betty into the oncoming lane. As we maneuvered around the slow-moving giant, I checked the lane ahead. At the top of the hill was an intersection, and a silver car was approaching it quickly from the left road. Without slowing down or stopping, the driver turned his silver death machine right and into the oncoming lane and straight towards me. I was at the point of no return, and I opened the throttle all the way, 85, 90, 95, at 100 miles per hour, the big V-twin shot past the front of the Crimson Killer and back into our northbound lane, just in time to have the discourteous and oblivious driver of the four-wheel death casket zoom on by, heading south and barely missing me. I saluted the driver of the cotton truck with my middle finger to assure him that he was number one in my book. I then said a silent prayer of thanks to God and the angels he had sent to watch over me. I stopped in Seymour, Texas at the All-Subs truck stop to top off my tank. I was 125 miles from home. My tank will take me on the highway 175 miles before it goes to reserve. The highway between Seymour and Wichita Falls is a long and lonely stretch with no services in between. It is a section road that no one would ever want to find themselves broke down on for any reason as help would be a long time coming. And I had no desire to find myself without gas on that road on this particular day. Seymour, Texas is a dying town. Even though it can lay claim as the county seat, it is dying just the same. It is a victim of that all-American village killer, the bypass. Like so many towns in Texas and elsewhere, the powers that be have seen fit to take away the town's economy by moving the highway from the center of town to the outskirts with only one or two inconvenient exits for travelers to enter or leave. I imagine Seymour in its heyday to be much the same as Silver Lake, Kansas must have been at the time of my mother's birth on July 26, 1935. Shirley Elizabeth Hummel was born in a barn on a farm on the outskirts of Silver Lake near Highway 24. The barn's loft was an apartment. It was the middle of the Depression, and her father, Oscar, had lost everything due to a nasty divorce from his first wife and the stock market crash of 1929. Oscar Lennox-Hummel was a dentist with a practice in Dodge City, Kansas, when his wife, Pearl, became pregnant with the child that would one day be Shirley Elizabeth. There was already a son, Carl, and Pearl was hoping for a baby girl. A couple of years previous, the Hummels had lost their oldest child, Priscilla, named after Oscar's mother, to the whooping cough. This baby was important because Pearl was a small woman, and this might be her last child as she gave birth to large children and it was very hard on her. That was not to say that she was weak or frail. She was not. Pearl was a pioneer stock. She was born in a sod house on the Klang homestead in the Texas Panhandle in 1904. Cowboys came from near and far to see the first white baby girl born in Canadia, Texas. Pearl Adeline Klang married Oscar Lennox Hummel in 1926. He was from Topeka, Kansas and quite a bit older than her. My grandmother once hinted that it was an arranged marriage that was financially beneficial to her parents. Be that as it may, she loved him and bore Oscar's first child, Priscilla, in 1930. I finished fueling my motorcycle and grabbed a couple of chimichangas and a bottle of water from Allsup's Deli. If you are ever traveling through Texas or New Mexico, stop at the Allsups and treat yourself to their chimneys. They are not to be missed. As I sat on my bike savoring the chimneys, a stray dog wandered the truck stop parking lot, looking for scraps on the ground. The dog, looking for a handout, approached an old man who was limping down the street. The old man shooed the hungry animal away with his cane and continued on his way. I watched the old man hobble away and thought about Oscar. He had a club foot, yet was still able to serve his country during World War I in his capacity as a dentist. And it was while serving his country that he became incurably crippled with the disease that would one day take his life forty years later. As I left Seymour maneuvered Black Betty back onto the highway, I thought about my grandfather. I thought about how Oscar had graduated from dental school in Kansas City, Missouri. I thought about how badly he wanted to serve his country when America entered the war in Europe. I tried to imagine his elation when he discovered that he would be able to go over to Europe and help soldiers with their dental problems using a relatively new invention called x-rays. I wondered how he must have felt when he found out those same x-rays had poisoned him and that he would never be a vital and vigorous man again. I shook my head as his dubious honor of being the first dentist to contract radiation poisoning. As the miles rode away I enjoyed the bright crispness of the day and I looked in anticipation to each milestone that would bring me one more mile closer to my goal. As the big bike grumbled under me I smiled, remembering one of my mother's favorite stories about her father. Shirley was almost three years old, and her father was outside the barn pulling weeds. The farm where she was born belonged to Oscar's dental partner, and he and Pearl helped out as they could around the property in exchange for the barn loft. As Oscar was hoeing out the weeds, a fancy Pontiac pulled up outside the fence. A stranger in a tan three-piece Sears and Roebuck suit stepped out of the car, the first thing Oscar noticed about this stranger was not the fancy car or the tan suit, but the bright white spats he was wearing. What a fool, Oscar thought. Those spats will be dirty in no time out here in farm country. As Oscar went towards the fence to find out what was going on, the stranger pulled out a camera and started taking pictures. Oscar knows that it was one of those new box cameras, and he wondered how something that small and cheaply made could take any sort of decent photo. As Oscar approached the fence, the stranger called out, "'Sure's a hot one today!' Oscar allowed that, "'It sure is a hot one,' then asked the stranger, "'What you doin?" The stranger produced a card from his vest pocket and handed it to Oscar. The plain white business card read, "'Joseph Levine, MGM Location Scout, Hollywood, California.' There was also a phone number on the card with an exchange that Oscar did not recognize. "'Well, Mr. Levine, please call me Joe!' "'Okay, Joe,' What exactly are you scouting? The studio's making a movie based on a popular novel. They want to build an authentic-looking set, so I am out taking photos of various farms so that we can build a set with authenticity. Oscar scratched his head. Wouldn't it be easier just to come and film on a farm that is already built rather than building one to look like a farm that is already here? Sir, what's your name? Dr. Hummel. Dr. Hummel? Joe looked Oscar up and down, not knowing whether or not to believe him. Dentist, Oscar said flatly. Well, Dr. Hummel, there are a lot of technical hurdles to overcome, and it is easier for us to recreate a farm and film in Hollywood rather than try to solve the technical problems on location. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I just think it is a waste of time and money to build something that is already built. Joseph Levine waved off the statement and said, Dr. Hummel, your farm may well be the star of a movie someday. Oscar chuckled. Well, if this farm becomes a movie star, I will have to buy the mule a pair of sunglasses so that it will look like all the other Hollywood jackasses. I laughed out loud, with the wind carrying away the sound of my laughter. Always laughed when I thought about that part, or when my mother would relate the story. Mule, sunglasses, Hollywood jackasses, I said out loud, as another laugh escaped my mouth. A couple of years had passed, and one day Oscar, Pearl, Carl, and Shirley were sitting in the Jayhawk Theater in downtown Topeka, Kansas, waiting for the main feature to start. They were not movie-going people, and with money tight, it was a luxury they could ill afford. But the children wanted to see this movie, and after all, it was based on a famous children's story, so they did not see the harm in splurging just this once. The newsreel played, talking about the European war that Oscar prayed that the U.S. would not get dragged into, Yet he knew it was inevitable. With that lunatic Hitler in charge in Germany, Oscar knew it was only a matter of time. He wondered about his own Hummel family still there and said a silent prayer for their safety. The children laughed and clapped at the antics of Tom and Jerry on the screen, and even the normally stern Oscar found himself smiling and laying out a small chuckle. Then it was time for the main feature. Pearl admonished the children to behave as the curtains parted and the powerful overture began to play. The movie was not even five minutes old when Oscar sat bolt upright in his chair, his jaw dropping open. He reached behind the children and grabbed his wife's shoulder. Pearl turned and looked at Oscar and mouthed the words, "'I know. I see.' At this point, Will Shirley cried out with glee, "'Mommy! Daddy! Our farm!' Oscar placed his head in his hand and mumbled, "'I sure hope that damn mule don't want a set of white spats to go with his sunglasses.' As Oscar, Pearl, Carl, and Shirley watched the tornado rip the small house from its foundation on the movie screen, Pearl said a silent prayer of thanks that the movie was just a fantasy and that she had never really been in a tornado. Pearl's mother had been deathly afraid of the deadly twisters, so her father had sold their homestead in the panhandle of Texas and moved to Kansas. Looking back on it now, she could see that his logic had been pretty silly. The Wizard of Oz is my favorite movie of all time. I honestly have never felt like it was because of my off-handed connection to it. I have just always liked its message of faith, love, hope, and its promise of home as well as the music. Ah, the music and as I rode the miles away, the tunes drifted through my head as the wind carried me home That concludes this episode of the Rubber Biscuit Road Show. Join us next week for Chapter 2 of Never Say Never, an Epic Journey, Volume 1, as we find out that it's going to be a bumpy night. Until then, this is the Gypsy wishing you and yours lots of blessings. Later, Gators. Bye-bye now. Visit the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow online at www.rubberbiscuit.com. That's ww.ru-b-b-e-r-b-i-s-k-i-t.com. The Rubber Biscuit Roadshow is produced by Tapman Productions, LLC. All parts of this program are copyrighted, all rights reserved. No parts may be published, reproduced, or used without the written express permission of Tapman Productions, LLC.